Good evening and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and if you're a regular listener, you'll know that this show, this podcast, is where we talk about all things green, all things environmental, and how we can do small things to have a lasting impact in terms of combating climate change. And we have, I think, a very nice programme lined up for you this evening, so I hope you stay tuned. We're joined by a previous guest on the show this evening who has recently expanded on their offering. Um, Brendan Dooley, I might go to you first, Brendan, because I know we have your daughter Lisa in, in the room as well tonight. But Brendan, for people who may have missed the last time you were on the show, talk to me about the factory and what you did in the factory to make the business more sustainable. Hello, Ashling. Great to be back on the show again. So the factory is a branding, design, print, sign making, web development business. We're based out here uh, between Kilcorrock and Bar near Five Valley Village. And um, sustainability is at the heart of everything we do. So your listeners might remember that I think we spoke about our solar array, our wind turbine. We have a battery bank. We have rainwater harvesting. We have a biodiversity area electric transport. So our focus is really on sustainability and how we can create uh, a better future really for generations who are uh, following. And that, Brendan, from speaking to you, um, I know has been really successful for you and the company. Yes, absolutely. What we've found is that probably a key is not only pursuing a sustainable path, but to tell that story so that others can engage with the enterprise because there are many people out there today who are um, shopping for, for meaning. I mean, they're, they're looking for value, but they're trying to do the right thing as well. And we can see there is a market. Our customer base has expanded from largely locally uh, initially, but since we began to tell our story and more people found out about us and what we do, our customer base is now nationwide, really, from Donegal to Cork to Wicklow to Clare, all around the country. Well, that is fantastic because I know there is perhaps a fear built in there for people who might be considering making these changes in their own business that, you know, this could cost money. It's certainly going to cost me an awful lot of headspace and time and energy. Would it really be worth it at the end of it when it comes down to brass tacks? So it's great to hear how successful it's been for yourself, Brendan, uh, and the factory overall. Now, I want to bring Lisa in here. So, Lisa, I mentioned you're the daughter. So, um, talk to me about your own involvement in the company, first off. Uh, yeah, sure. So, I suppose I grew up with uh, sustainability being in the background. Um, so, it very much uh, formed my core values. And that was due to um, dad and my mom's, uh, I suppose, passion for the environment. And then dad went on to... Um, found the local planet, which was a journal on sustainable living. So that was back in 2004. So right from the early days, it's kind of been a part of the conversation in the home and, and that kind of thing. Um, however, I didn't realize how, uh, I suppose, trailblazing this was at the time because it was normal to me as a kid. Um, and when it came to... Yeah, we, we tend not to see our parents as trailblazers. No, we? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we see them for the, the least cool thing possible, probably like... Um, so I 
kind of wanted to do my own thing and I never thought that I would be involved in the family business, but I think it was going away and traveling and doing a bit of education and Galamantan and God knows what, and then coming back to the business and kind of seeing with fresh eyes. And um, there was such a beautiful core to the, the business and I saw a huge potential for kind of, I suppose, doing more good. Um, so I came on board in 2019. I have a background in design. So like printing and design go hand in hand. So a part of um, going forward was to, I guess, be more design focused and more brand focused, but also to improve the business's brand. And as dad mentioned already, to tell that story. So the focus changed from being, um, trying to be the most sustainable business to being an example, inspirational business, because we're only tiny business and we can only do so much, but if we can inspire others and prove to others that going sustainable is not only good for the environment and good for society, but it's also good for your profit. Um, that's when we can do the, the most good. Um, and that kind of brought us on to introducing this new educational aspect as well and using the factory as an example. Um, and that's when we decided to create the Eco School. You are preaching to the choir here. I operate as a communications coach and you're just singing my, my, my theme tune here about the importance of sharing your story with your customer base or potential customer base, I should say. So Eco School is why I wanted to have both of you on the program tonight. Um, I know you had your one of your first outings, I believe, recently for Eco School. So what exactly is it? Yes, yeah, so the... EcoSchool is really an educational aspect to the business. So we were very slow really to uh, get to where we are now because we were on a sustainable path, uh, a winding journey since 2000, since we began the business. But it, it took us a long time to research uh, and get the necessary information uh, as to what we could do and how to do many things that we wanted. And of course, the downturn in 2008 probably delayed progress a little because as you mentioned earlier um, a financial investment is required but um, so yet there were many obstacles along the way and it was only really when Lisa came on board that we really looked at our small business from a whole new perspective and we decided that many of that uh, wish list of things that we wanted to do for ourselves that we actually uh, like let's go and do it like and this might sound a little bit reckless, but uh, we knew there was a large investment required. So uh, we went to our bank who referred us to uh, the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland because what we needed was probably a little more than what the business could justify financially. But we did know from business courses that uh, a business that stands for something is more likely to succeed. So we really uh, ticked off every sustainable box really on our wish list. As I mentioned earlier, all those items uh, from the uh, energy generation uh, right through to uh, electric delivery. Mm -hmm. But the information we collected, we would really like to share that uh, with others. We mentioned telling our story earlier. So an important part uh, we felt uh, on that wish list was further education. So Treva's enrolled in a course, Climate Resilience uh, in Business at GMIT. And uh, that gave us a lot of um, theory to go with the practice that we wanted to do. And um, so the idea behind the Eco School is that we have practical knowledge, we have some theory, and we'd really like to share that with others. And of course, we are a business. 
So while we're sharing knowledge, it will be of uh, it should be really advantageous and we hope inspirational to others. It also must be done on a commercial basis. So that is why we set up uh, the Eco School. Really, that's the thinking behind it. Anyway. Then, so when you say school, I'm thinking, you know, everybody gathering in a classroom for for lessons or or something like that. So what does it look like then for for people who might be interested? Yeah, um, we wanted to kind of make it as approachable and as easy um, for anyone to, to, I suppose, to make it as accessible as possible mm-hmm. for people to come on board because we know we realized from the courses that we studied that a lot of the theory, there is a bit of a learning curve and we wanted to flatten that curve as much as possible because it doesn't have to be complicated. Like once you kind of set your mind to it, it is straightforward. You just have to take it step by step. So uh, that's why we called it a school. So it kind of was kind of going back to basics um, and then we wanted to make it as fun and as inspirational as possible. So um, we essentially tell our story. We talk about a step by step, the practical steps that we took. So you'll be able to not only uh, learn from what we had done right, but also what we've done wrong along the way. and. Uh, just make it as accessible and as simple as possible because whenever we talk about sustainability oftentimes people kind of close up because it seems like such a massive um, issue to solve but if we all have that attitude nothing's going to be solved so if you can kind of get your head around and it is doable and I suppose the beauty with what we're offering here is we have the factory as the example to prove that it is possible and that will give inspiration and then people will be able to visualize what they can do in their own setting. Um, so that that's really, I think, the strength of the course. So then, Lisa, is it a course over a number of weeks or is it a day-long thing? How exactly does it work then? Well, we're hoping to expand on the courses, but the initial course is kind of a general overview of sustainability in business. So it's called Eco Action for Enterprise and is very much action-focused because I, I guess we want to um, empower are the participants, the students that come on board to actually make a positive impact in their own business. So um, we there's also uh, workshops included and a tour of the factory and uh, refreshments included and everything like that. And, and we hope that there'll be lovely peer-to-peer learning as well. Um, so yeah, we, got, we had one uh, class already, so that was about two weeks ago. Yeah, during Enterprise Week. During Enterprise Week and Leo Offaly kindly helped us um, set that day up. And um, yeah, it was really successful and we had fantastic comments at the end of it and people left feeling inspired, which is our goal. So that was music to our ears to hear that. And so we're really excited that going forward. I uh, I came across it because people were proudly sharing their certificates on their Instagram feeds. So um, <laughs> it, yeah, so it, it did, it, it's a great first um you know, first outing for you and hopefully, as you say, it will grow and expand. So our, I, I should say, and I don't think I said in my introduction, I should have said you're based out just outside Burr in County Offaly. So do you, do you know, are you getting people from across the region or or who are the people that you have um, have contacted you about it so far? I suppose, yes. Uh, actually, our initial course was uh, in collaboration with local uh, enterprise office here in, uh, in Offaly. But uh, because, of course, they're advertising on their website, that's a national uh, mm-hmm. thing. So we have had uh, applications from around the country. But obviously, local enterprise awfully wanted to uh, 
facilitate uh, local enterprises. So I think we might have had just one from across the border from Westmead, but that was okay. Uh, they allowed, they allowed <laughs> it. allow that one person in. Well, we ran. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, but but go, go, going forward, yes, we plan uh, for this to be a nationwide, and hopefully, we can work uh, in collaboration with other uh, LEOs, local enterprise offices, all around the country. And we've also had some initial contact with uh, leader groups, and in fact, there are some courses already planned. So yeah, we're hoping we can work with both community groups and small enterprises. The course content will be slightly different, but uh, depending on their needs, obviously we'll adapt and adjust based on uh, based on demand really. And like, um, you know, many have said it before me, but education to this is, education about the problem and the solution is how we're going to solve this overarching problem. And I think Lisa, you hit the nail on the head there. Like, and I hear it time and time again, people do want to do their bit, but it's such an overwhelmingly large problem that you know, people just think I can't make a difference. You know, what's the point? So, you know, what, Lisa, do you think would be the key takeaway from our conversation today that, that you'd like people to take from it? Um, yeah, that's it. Exactly. I feel like whenever we talk about sustainability, it's so overwhelming. So that's the main takeaway that I'd like people to, to, um, to take is that it isn't. It's totally doable. All you need to do is start. And once you start a positive chain reaction and momentum happens and you will you'll be like so surprised of what you can accomplish in such a short space of time and it's incredibly I feel like in a way we with the factory we have a secret of how to run a business not only that's uh, profitable but it's also like really re- personally rewarding it's fun um, it creates an amazing atmosphere for the team and for our clients and our customers and we just want to share that and to prove that it is so doable and you will be, it's a win-win-win situation. Um, and yeah, we're really, really excited. And I feel like this is the beginning for sustainable business. Um, and there's so much, so much more exciting things uh, to come up. So if Brendan, people want to get in contact with you to find out, you know, whether or not one of your courses might suit them, what's, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yes, Ashling, um contact us through ecoschool.ie. We have um, a form where um, anyone can express interest and that email will, that we could choose an email to us and then we will follow up with, with them. Probably a couple of other things I could mention is that, um, say, our, for example, our investment in green energy. We initially uh, forecast the payback for that investment approximately 10 years. But because now uh, electricity prices have in fact doubled since we made that our initial plan, and we're also uh, now have just signed a contract to be paid for excess electricity we sent to the grid, uh, the payback in that will be approximately five years, uh, which is really incredible. But not so after that, uh, obviously our electricity cost will be very low. It's just really maintenance on the system, and and separate uh, just. A separate thing is we have a four-day work week and something we hadn't even thought about is um, that extra day, there's very little heat and no lighting needed. So we're also saving there. So there are many advantages apart from, as Lisa mentioned, uh, personal fulfillment. The business uh, will be more profitable when there's a power cut, you have your own energy and there's also there's energy security, but there's also some certainty about the cost because you have actually made that investment. But there are points I'd just like to, to mention for some SMEs, they, 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 they might be important. 
And as you say, Brendan and Lisa, if people have questions, they can go on to ecoschool.ie to get in touch with you. Um, and I know you also have the Instagram at ecoschool.ie as well. Brendan and Lisa Dooley, thank you for joining us once again on Let's Go Green. And I think we should watch this space when it comes to the two of you. I suspect big things from the pair of you. We're hopeful. Thanks for being asking. Appreciate the invite. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you're enjoying our show so far this evening. Just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the programme is available as a podcast. So each week after the show airs on Midlands 103 on Monday nights at 7pm, it goes out then afterwards on Apple, Spotify and indeed Google Podcasts. So if you find that you miss an episode of a Monday evening on Midlands 103 FM, you can hop on over to your preferred podcast app and tune into us there. You might even subscribe to our podcast, share with with friends and family, or even if you're on Apple, sure go on while you're feeling generous, you might as well give us a review. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to be checking in with environmental journalist John Gibbons on the state of the environment and the UN warning that the earth is slowly but surely becoming uninhabitable. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Well, over the last few days, the UN, the United Nations, has issued, let's call it a report card, on the state of the environment. And really, they've issued, well, yet another warning as to how serious the climate crisis that we are all facing um, is at and the urgency at which we need to make measures and attempts to tackle the issue. And to discuss exactly what the United Nations has said, we're joined now by environmental journalist and commentator John Gibbons. John, you're welcome back to the show. Good evening, Ashley. Delighted to be back. John, take me through what exactly has the United Nations um, said in the last few days? Okay, well, the first thing to say is that this is what's called a synthesis report. So it basically brings together the last three, uh, if you like, modular IPCC reports, plus uh, three or four other uh, separate reports over the last maybe three or four years. And this kind of puts the whole lot together into a single into a single blended uh, source and uh, including what's called a summary for policymakers. So basically that's designed to guide politicians and, and other planners in how they do their business. So... This process, the IPCC process, has been going on for about 30 years. Uh, and this is the sixth report. So that means, on average, it reports about every five years. So we won't have another one of these uh, probably towards the end, until towards the end of the 2020s. So what the sixth assessment basically is telling us is that we're in deep trouble, really, really deep trouble. Um, if they, they compare, for example, uh, with AR5, which is the last report. They said that many climate risks are higher than assessed in AR5, and projected long-term impacts are up to multiple times higher than currently observed. So what it means actually in simple terms is things are getting uh, worse more quickly than the scientists themselves would have projected, say, the last time we had an assessment report, which would have been five, six years ago. So uh, I think we, we this has really been borne out by real-world evidence. I think it, it was the case maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago that people looked at these reports and they were very much about what's going to happen in the future. 
I think what we're now looking at instead is what's happening right now in the present. Uh, we're already at about plus 1.1, slightly approaching 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. Uh, and that is sufficient additional energy in the global uh, climate system to be fueling, for example, Euro's, Europe's hottest ever summer. 2022 was the hottest summer ever recorded in Europe. And that's from 500 years plus of detailed instrumental records across Europe. And that is simply down to a factor that's not a coincidence, that's not a freak, that's not a once-off. It is to the fact that there's vastly more energy now tied up in the global climate system, vastly more energy. And that's the situation. And of course, we've always had extreme weather events, as we know, uh, both in Ireland and Europe and other places. The big difference these days is that we're getting uh, extreme weather events, whether it's drought, heat waves, uh, flooding events, on a scale and spread geographically from literally from the, from the the Arctic region to Antarctica and everywhere in between. So what we're getting basically is a, a, a fairly rapid destabilization of the global climate system. And this is described. And let me let me just give you some of the language that the IPCC used to describe this. They yeah, say that please. the likely yeah yeah the likelihood of abrupt or irreversible changes increases with higher global warming. And they say similarly the probability of low likelihood outcomes associated with potentially very large adverse impacts uh, increases with higher global warming. Now, I'm sorry about the language, it's a little technical. Some of your listeners might be aware of what's called black swan events. Now, a black swan event is very simply an event that is rare, but extremely serious. So what we're saying is, in a climate heated future, we're likely to encounter more and more black swan events. These are ones which are statistically unlikely, but of, with devastating consequences. So, uh, so this know, idea that that people in Ireland, I think, we would be very familiar with maybe a once in a lifetime flood or a once in a lifetime big freeze. These are referred to as um, black swan events. Is that is that it? Yeah, that that's exactly it. And and you know they would be as I said low probability, high impact. Now, as you say, we've all heard of the once in a century flood. You can. Strike that phrase from your from your vocabulary because we're in an era where the baseline is changing so quickly that what used to be considered to be uh, a once-in-a-century uh, weather phenomena, we can now look at it as being once the, the, the frequency likelihood may have increased to once every 10 years, to once every five years, or even more frequent than that. And the, the bottom line here really, and, and I think it's important to try and keep this as simple and as clear as possible because... You know, some of these assessment reports, they can sound very off-putting. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is, we've heard this again and again and again, and it is it is a little bit of a broken record here from the IPCC. They've been shouting at us for 20, 30 years to say, we emissions are rising quickly, globally. And the problem with emissions is that it's a cumulative problem. So most of the carbon dioxide that was emitted 10, 20, 30, even 50 years ago, is still active in the atmosphere and continues to warm. So it's like actually that we're putting coal on the fire, but the coal that we put on the fire last year is still burning, right? So the heat is actually increasing. It's not the case of like when you put some coal on the fire, it burns away. So the problem with CO2, once you convert, uh, whether it's fossil fuels into CO2, they become long, that's a long acting gas. Some of the CO2 that we release, you know, for every hundred molecules of CO2, half them will be active in a century, even 500, even a thousand years time. So it's really is we're we're baking in consequences for every future generation. Now, 
when I say future generations, I can hear your listeners saying, ah, nothing for me to worry about. The future generations who will be severely impacted by climate change are already born. This is no longer, you know, and I've been at this long enough where I, I've been in rooms where I'm saying, you know, if we don't get our act together on this, people, you know, in future generations, those future generations are already alive. Young people today, particularly anybody under the age of 20, even I would argue anybody under the age of 30, the thing that is going to dominate their lives, particularly the second half of their lives, more than anything else, more than the economy, more than the housing crisis, more than whatever other thing that, that, that you're exercised about, is the impacts of a failing global climate system. Now, this is important because, and, and I think if I can switch briefly from the science to the politics for a moment here, isn't it incredible? Here we are at the end of the week of this vast assessment report having been launched. And remember, this is the largest scientific um, collaboration in human history. There's more scientists involved in creating this report, like vastly more than the scientific team, for example, that put the Apollo mission on the moon. This is how gigantic a scientific uh, endeavor this is. Yet, the reaction in the newspapers, in the media this week was, I, I think the story was published on Monday. It, it was in the front of the Times on Tuesday, the front of the Examiner on Tuesday, gone by Wednesday. Mm. Absolutely gone like it never happened. And as a an old stager on this on this thing. I'm just fascinated. And there was an interesting point made in the Business Post today about it in their editorial. They said that the release of this report, which says we have to phase out fossil fuels quickly to have a livable future, didn't even affect the stock market globally. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you... It's, they're not the being listened market. to. They know that it's not going well, to be listened to. They, bingo. What yeah. they know is, and these, this is, these are the money people, they know full well that this is all yada, yada, yada. They know that the scientists will talk, but nobody is listening. The, the financial markets are not interested. The big banks are not interested. The, the people making a ton of money out of the current system are not interested in addressing the climate emergency. They, they're, yeah, I won't even say they don't care. They're not engaged because it's not part of their business model. Most of them, they didn't learn about it in school. You know, now don't get me wrong. There's no excuse for seeing for senior people to not understand the climate emergency. In fact, there's really at this stage very little excuse for any of us. But they Online. haven't bothered to find out. The, are they becoming gay? What? The, no, they don't want to know. And I and I can understand this. And we see this at a government level. We see it at political level. You know, I was on a on a, a talk show panel the other night. You know, and I was surrounded by politicians. And you know, I made that point that as soon as any of these politicians start to really seriously engage with the climate emergency and start saying to their constituents, for example, you know, we're going to have to crack down on things like cheap flying and, you know, overuse of driving. We're going to have to tax, you know, say vehicles like SUVs to really reflect the huge climate impacts. As soon as they start speaking about that, they'll be kicked out because the electorate, that means you and me, we don't want to know either. So basically, we're on a ship. There's a huge hole in the ship. The IPCC, every five or six years tells them that the hole is getting bigger and the crack is spreading the whole way down the ship. But we're on the ship saying, well, uh, I'm all right, Jack. I can't feel any wet where I am, so I'm ground. And we're in this weird, weird situation. And I've had numerous interviews this week and been talking to numerous people about it. And one of the things that came up with a very senior broadcaster on Tuesday, he said to me, but John, what's the point in, Ch in, in Ireland doing anything about it? We're only small. And sure, what if the Chinese don't do anything? Well, then it doesn't matter what we do. But do you know, John, sense. it's a fair question because it is a prevailing attitude. It might not be what that broadcaster thinks on a personal level, 
But it is yeah. an attitude that is a, a quite common across the country. I think you're right, and and I mean, I I couldn't comment on whether how that person feels about it. I wouldn't I wouldn't dream to. And I think he was asking the question on behalf of his listeners, and it's mm-hmm. a fair question. And I've been asked it many times. And I would break it down like this: per capita, Irish we we in Ireland are among the highest polluters in the European Union, and the European Union is one of the highest polluting parts of the world. So individually. If you take the 5 million people in Ireland, it doesn't sound like a lot in the global population, but we produce the equivalent emission emissions of about three to 400 million people in sub-Saharan Africa. So now all of a sudden you go, actually, 5 million people can actually have a significant impact, especially when we compare ourselves with the world's poorer people who have done almost nothing to create this crisis and who in the short term and in the immediate term are suffering the most. So you've got areas, for example, as I'm sure you're more than familiar with, like the Horn of Africa, where they have devastating droughts. Now, the people in the Horn of Africa, their carbon emissions are probably less per person or even per family than your average uh, fridge freezer, right? That's how much, how little they contribute to this crisis. And yet they're the ones suffering. Uh, Here in, in wealthy countries like Ireland, the attitude has been, well, you know, uh, what about the Chinese? But the problem with that uh, approach is that if we take that view, well, what about the Chinese? The Chinese then can respond with saying, what about the Irish? And then the Irish say, what about the Americans? What about the French? That means we all play a game called, I won't do something until everybody else does something. Now, to go back to my key boat analogy, if we're all sitting in the boat and the water is coming in at our feet, crack is spreading, the hole is getting bigger. What is the use of saying, what about the Chinese? Because at the bottom of the sea, it doesn't matter whether you're Irish or Chinese or African. Because essentially, my analogy is really straightforward and really simple. That is, if we allow the global climate system to effectively fail and ecosystems to collapse, well then, we're all at the bottom of the sea in the metaphorical and in the real sense. There is there's no, basically, there's no future for our species and for very few other species uh, Earth basically is heading towards largely being largely uninhabitable for the next several million years. And that's that word was used yep. in the report. That's not you putting yep. words into, nope. the, into the scientist's mouth. And John, I wonder, like that point yep. that you make, and I know a lot of people have made it on, on my show over the past year that that we are particularly bad at this in Ireland. Like you look at even within Europe, we're one of the worst. And I think it can be hard for people to compare our lifestyle and say how bad we are at minding the environment here in Ireland with people who are in famine-stricken regions because their quality of life wouldn't be as good as ours. Their their health services, whatever you might say about the health services here, wouldn't be at the same level that we've had here. It might not be as relatable as perhaps looking at the European countries, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, what is it about our system that makes us so bad at this? Okay, well, if we break it down on a, on a per person basis in Ireland, we we each are responsible for emitting about thirteen tons of carbon dioxide a year each. So think of it in simple terms: over a ton of carbon dioxide each each man, woman, and child in Ireland every month we release, or we're we're responsible for it. Now, the figures are distorted because, for example, we have a a huge livestock sector, which is the, the that dominates agriculture, and agriculture is 37, 38% of our emissions. So, so it, it might be unfair to blame somebody in a 
in a in a semi D in, in 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 moat for you know for the emissions that are actually attributable to their neighbour up the road who's got three hundred dairy cows right where that person is emitting you know maybe whatever scores of tons of carbon maybe hundreds of tons of carbon a year so but the way these averages work out is all all the population are put together and all the averages count in so agriculture is one area where we're really our emissions profile is highly unusual because of our 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 high uh, dependence on livestock agriculture. So it's most unusual, number one. Number two, we have a really unusual uh, distribution of, of, of uh, living. How can I put this? We have a, a ribbon and a scattered development in Ireland, over 400,000 once-off houses scattered down the highways and byways, up country roads in Ireland. You simply don't see this type of scattered development in, if you go to Britain or France or Italy, basically, People live in cities, they live in towns, and they live in villages. They do not live a mile and a quarter up the road, then another house, another, you know, 200 yards up. Because of that, we're highly car dependent, and it's very difficult to provide public transport services in rural Ireland because people are scattered. Where It's like as if we put, put your hand into a bowl of rice, and you threw the rice out into the garden, and then you see it. There's houses scattered all over the place. And I see this, for example, driving back from Kilkenny to Dublin. And as you come over the hill, and, and if, when you look at night, you notice that there is no countryside. Basically, it is, you see the lights of the pie over here. But when you look across the countryside, it's just light, 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 right across the countryside. So we have this crazy scattered development. Why has that happened? It has happened because, I guess, politicians have, are quite happy to sign off and planning permission. Landowners are delighted to sell plot and we have failed to regulate this. And also, of course, the effect of that, it has killed a lot of our towns and villages because they don't have the population density to support shops, and pubs and restaurants because people are scattered everywhere. A lot of the pubs in Ireland have died because uh, there's people can't walk to them because they're living out in the countryside. And obviously, it's a very good thing that we don't have drink driving anymore. But unfortunately, that scattered development. Now, obviously, some people have to live in the countryside. Farmers, for example, of course, you live in the countryside. But what we have are people who, who really have no connection to the countryside, who just live, you know, on a half acre up the side of a road, you know, three or four kilometers from the local village. And that means if they want to bring Johnny to school or in the car, if they want to bring Johnny to hurling, they're in the car. They're in the car morning, noon and night. And that's another reason why our emissions are so high from the transport sector. We also have problems with our build quality of our of our housing stock in Ireland. A lot of it is very is very poorly built. And what I mean by poorly built is from an energy point of view, we've, we've got at least a million houses that need to be energy upgraded. It can be done. Uh, it's expensive. I think the government needs to help people more. But... Mm-hmm. It can be it can be done. And of course, we're, we're doing some really, really bad things, like really super bad things, like we're continuing to burn turf. We're continuing to tolerate the cutting of turf, even from special area conservation bogs, quite a bit, by the way, of which is completely illegal. We have an unregulated, chaotic sector here. Uh, and we have a situation where we're destroying some of the last remaining intact bog lands in Europe. These are powerful carbon sinks, meaning that an intact healthy bog is a fantastic carbon sponge. It, it absorbs far more carbon per acre than a forest, right? Yet what we're doing is we're draining uh, and cutting these bogs. And as a result, we have a huge emissions again from our damaged boglands. And by the way, for very little gain, other than a few 
turf contractors making making some easy money out of it. Uh, the quality of turf, it's a, it's a really poor quality substance. There will be those, Smoky. though, that say they couldn't afford to heat their homes without turf. That well, they would end up living correct. in cold. That is true. How do, I mean, sure, Let's. I've heard that argument, actually, that people say, oh, I, I depend on the turf from Johnny up the road. Now, there's lots of people, by the way, who don't have Johnny up the road, who don't live somewhere where there's, there's turf cutting going on. How do they heat their homes? I think, I'll be honest with you, I'm sorry, it's a lazy excuse, right? What they mean is they've gotten used to getting dirt cheap. But the thing is, when you burn turf in your open fire, you're burning a low-grade a low grade, uh, substance that is smoky, emits huge amounts of PM 2.5s and 2.10s, or PM10s, I should say. And these basically, when you inhale these, they, you get all manner of diseases from them, like respiratory diseases, heart disease, and so on. So these are like so when you burn it, your neighbors are breathing in your your, your really dirty smoke. And also when you burn one of those in your fireplace in your house, you're also affecting the air quality within your own home. Now I know you might say, oh well, sure, that's what we always had. But you know what? We used to have donkeys and, and traps. But we don't anymore because <laughs> times move on. So and we do have says, very high rates of childhood respiratory disorders in this country. We, you know, yeah. we have uh, there's an awful lot of asthma in Ireland. I say that as an asthmatic whose lungs didn't develop properly when I was a child. Yeah. You know, so I, I I kind of but having said that, I grew up with a turf fire and I love the smell of it. There is we're very attached to it. I think we need to get to a point where we equate the fumes from burning fossil fuels in our homes, just like we do with smoking. Like most people now wouldn't allow a visitor come into their home and smoke in the house. Most people you know that? wouldn't get into a taxi where the taxi driver was smoking. You know, I think we need to make it very relatable for people, John. You know, you're absolutely right. I'm, and I say this as a, as a reformed smoker from many years ago. I love the smell of a cigarette. In fact, uh, you know, even now, when somebody's smoking, I, I I don't want to sit with them in, in in my house. But if you're in a pub or something and you're outside, even the waft, you know, as a as a former smoker, you always still enjoy that smell. However, I certainly wouldn't inflict it on somebody in in the house. I wouldn't mm-hmm. let somebody light up in my house. And as you said, if if the guy in the taxi lit up, I would get out of the taxi. So we've become correctly intolerant to certain types of air pollution. We recognise the dangers of smoking, but I assure you, when you burn. Uh, like dirty solid fuels like peat and or wet wet timber for example is equally dangerous when you burn it uh, you get what's called black carbon and as I said these PM 2.5s and PM 10s and as your respiratory consultant will tell you this stuff fills hospital beds we have 1300 premature deaths in Ireland every year from air pollution right and the weird thing actually about it is you would say that this is a problem for Dublin or big smoky Dublin it actually isn't Dublin introduced a, a, a smoky coal ban in 1990, and it's reckoned there's hundreds of people, maybe thousands at this stage, alive in Dublin today, whose lives, who would have died prematurely from, from smoky air. And I think, ironically, some of the worst air quality outside of China has been recorded in small Irish villages and towns. One that springs to mind, for example, is Enniscorthy in County Wexford. Some shocking air quality uh, readings have been recorded there. And you might say, why would a small Irish town or village have terrible air quality? And it has to do with the burning and the selling of really dirty fossil fuels. Now, somebody's making a few bob off them, but the question is, 
is it acceptable? Are we happy that they are allowed, first of all, especially, and I have a particular beef here, as you might gather, with the guys involved in, in cutting our bogs, whether they're Bordemona or some of these uh, so-called private contractors. You know, this should have stopped years ago. There's no excuse or reason for it. We understand the role of bogs in biodiversity. We understand the role of bogs in climate in climate protection. And, you know, there were various schemes brought in, for example, to buy out turbury rights for people who had a small, you know, were cutting on the local bog, uh, particularly on the on the SAC, the, the Special Area Conservation Bogs. And yet it continues. And it's deeply antisocial. And I would say, actually, similarly antisocial to the people in Ireland who, and they know who they are, who are burning every, particularly happens every January, February, March, and even sometimes further, where they decide to burn the hills to clear to clear the gorse, um, mm. or usually for grazing. A completely antisocial behaviour. Again, uh, we had almost had a radar station burned down uh, a few weeks back down in, I think it was either Cork or Kerry. We had huge number of units of the fire service at cost of millions of euros and at risk to their own lives, out fighting fires that were started deliberately by people who think nothing of it. We think it's, oh, well, we always do this. It's just there's some terrible, terrible behavior that has continues. I mean, we don't tolerate drink driving. We don't tolerate indoor smoking. But yet this type of antisocial behavior is still being tolerated. And, and there are really so sure. many things in modern society that we know were acceptable 10, 20, 30 years ago that we just don't tolerate now. And you know, we do need to move on and do our own bit on a personal level. And I'm saying that as someone who I'm not perfect. I know I'm not good at doing these things, but I do accept that I have to get better at it. And I hope we all move in that direction. But on the, I think it's fair to say, John, a very stark week for the environment in the wake of this report. It is disappointing, as you pointed out, to see that it's not getting the global attention that it does deserve. But I suppose I'll ask you my final question, John. Is the situation at this point hopeless? Okay. You could never say that. And I'll tell you why. Because we know for certain that every fraction of a degree that heating increases means misery and death for millions of people. Now, conversely, every fraction of a degree that we avoid happening means preventing avoidable death, preventing hardship, preventing famines, preventing droughts, preventing climate migration on an epic scale. So there's everything to fight for. It's, you know, I'm, I often describe it thus. The situation is far too serious for pessimism. We cannot throw our hands in the air and say, oh, tis all too late. Not at all. Are, are we where we want to be? Absolutely not. But we still have the once in a, in a generation opportunity to be part of the people that helped to turn this thing around. And at the moment, uh, as I say, what we're fighting for is a livable future for everybody today who is young, particularly. And when I say young, you know, this could be under 40, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And not just them, but every future generation today unborn, people, people out who will be born in the middle of this century. Unless we turn this thing around, they are going to be born into what you might describe as a Mad Max world. That's not a world any of us want to live in. And that's something to me, you know, you ask me the question, is it too late? Hell no. And by the way, it's never too late to start, you know, doing the right thing.
because but of course the that, things we're fighting for <laughs> on that hopeful i hope uh final words john and i will have to leave it there because we are short on time but but john gibbons environmental journalist and commentator thank you for joining us on this week's episode of let's go green you're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands103.com. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's episode of the show. Don't forget, you can get in contact with me directly on Midlands103.com. Just look up my name, Ashling O'Rourke, on the website there. And there's a handy link where you can send me a message directly through it. Of course, we are also available on your preferred podcast app. We're on Spotify, Google and indeed Apple Podcasts. So if you can't listen in to Let's Go Green of a Monday night, just tune into your preferred podcast app and you will find us there. My thanks to my guests for this week's episode of Let's Go Green. I hope you learned something about greenwashing and how it's in many cases quite legal But is it ethical and do we need, I think we do, I think we need some legislation around just everything requiring regulation of how environmental issues are communicated to us. I think we need plain English legislation. I know it's been done elsewhere. I know they are working on it in the UK. So I promise we will come back to it at a later date here on Let's Go Green. And of course, we will follow the progress of the yoga picnic at Loch Ennell House. It'll be very interesting to see how the ladies get on in making their festival waste-free. We've seen those horrible pictures after large festival gatherings in different parts of the country where there's been so much rubbish and litter and tents and God knows what left behind. So it'll be very interesting to see how the yoga picnic grows and develops in the coming festival seasons. That is it for this week's episode of Let's Go Green. Have a great week, stay safe and I'll be back same time next week with another edition of Let's Go Green.